Uh, hopefully you've got your notes and hopefully you're ready to dig in. We'll start uh, today by going into Hosea and Joel. So we're starting another distinct section of the Old Testament. We begin a study tonight on what is called uh, the Minor Prophets. Why are they called the Minor Prophets? Can anybody tell me? Shorter. That's right, they're shorter. They're not minor in their significance or importance. Uh, as according to the Major Prophets, they are minor because they're tinier. Um, that's it. Uh, also, just so you know, um, there's 12 minor prophets, and they're traditionally uh, been associated together. In fact, they're often referred to as the Book of the Twelve. Okay, you could kind of look at them the way you would look at the books of Moses, uh, in the sense where there's there's five distinct books, but often they're taken and considered together as one complete work. Okay, uh, now for those of you who struggled with the chronology of Daniel and it not being in chronological order, guess what? The prophets, the minor prophets, are not in chronological order at all. In fact, it's really hard to tell what the reasoning was behind their ordering, how they're structured. Um, most likely, it would be thematic or theolo- theological in some way, uh, but scholars even disagree on what that thematic or theological connections are and why they are ordered the way that they are. At any rate, there is a way in which we would say they're roughly chronological. What do I mean by that? Well, the first six, Hosea through Micah, which would be Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah, uh, are all set prior to the fall of the northern kingdom Israel. And we all know that the northern kingdom Israel fell to the Assyrians in... Babylon. No, what date? In... 722 B.C. That's good. And I know that you all knew that and didn't look at your notes as well, right? Um, the next three, so we have, we have Hosea through Micah, the first six. They take place in the context of the northern kingdom, Israel. Remember, Israel splits in two if you're new. Uh, the, Israel talking about in 2 Samuel, they end up splitting the northern being Israel, the southern being Judah. It's a huge thing. Israel is just terrible in their sin and wickedness, and they're taken over by Assyria, the nation of Assyria. Assyria comes knocking down on Judah's door. Judah repels Assyria through God's faithfulness. But then who comes and takes over Judah? Babylon comes and takes over Judah. So the first six, Hosea through Micah, they're set prior to when the northern kingdom falls. Then the next three, Nahum through Zephaniah, are set prior to the southern kingdom, Judah falling. And who can tell me, without looking at your notes, when Judah fell? What's that year? 586. 586 B.C. 722, 586. I'm not going to ask you too many dates, but those are important dates. Um, And then the final three, uh, Haggai through Malachi, are set... Uh, after the southern kingdom's return from exile. So remember, at the very end, the southern kingdom returns. Daniel actually covered all of that. Uh, but at the very end, the, the kingdom of Israel returns back into Jerusalem. And that's where Haggai, uh, Zechariah, and Malachi cover. So there are structured in some order. First six, northern kingdom. Next three, southern kingdom. Last three, return from exile. All these prophets are structured in that way. We, of course, are going to look at them as we have every other book in the Old Testament, as they fit into what we call redemptive history. Today, we've got two, Hosea and Joel. We start with the context, and we start with the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea was written by the prophet 
Y'all are smart. All right, so you can see that in chapter 1, verse 1, if you turn there. Uh, Hosea preached during the time of Uzziah up to the time of Hezekiah. Who can tell me maybe who would be a contemporary then of Hosea? Were he maybe a major prophet who also prophesied during those times? Anybody know? Isaiah. Isaiah, absolutely great. So Isaiah and Hosea were in similar times in their prophecies. Um, Jeroboam is the only northern king that's mentioned. Um, though Hosea prophesied while others were king, uh, perhaps even right up to the time that the north fell, uh, this places Hosea's ministry during uh, the mid to late 8th century BC. It was actually a time, get this, of great economic prosperity. Um, and the people had slipped into worshiping Baal instead of Yahweh. Or perhaps they were worshiping them together, but guess who they were accrediting with all their prosperity? Baal, not Yahweh. The focus of attention is again on the northern kingdom. Like an adulterous wife, Israel has broken the covenant with Yahweh. And now Yahweh is angry and is ready to cast Israel off from being His people. Do you remember all the way back in the book of Exodus where the Lord referred to Israel as my people? And that's significant, right? Pharaoh, let my people go. Well, now he's ready to call them not my people. It's a sad prophecy that Hosea brings, but we'll see that it's also very much mixed with grace. That's the context. Let's look at the theme. With all the poetry and apocalyptic language, it's very easy to get lost in these minor prophets. We kind of skip them often, but it's very easy to get lost here. But there's a general outline that fits them all, and this is something I want you to know. So, this is something I want you to take with you from minor prophets in here, okay? There is a general outline that fits them all. There is indictment for sin, judgment, and then grace, okay? Having those bearings like that can really help you not get lost in some of the kind of complex details of a particular text. The prophets go and they recite the sins of the people. Here is where you're guilty. It's an indictment. Then they threaten judgment if they won't repent. But they always, always, always end on grace because Yahweh is covenantly faithful and He's a God who keeps loving kindness towards the people to whom He has promised to be their God. But more particularly for Hosea, a theme might sound something like this. The people of Israel have broken the covenant like an adulterous wife, even though Yahweh has been a faithful husband to them. Okay, The people of Israel have broken the covenant like an adulterous wife, even though Yahweh has been a faithful husband to them. Another interesting thing that I want you to pay attention to when we talk about minor prophets, these 12 books of the Bible, is how often they use everyday things to symbolize greater religious truths. What I mean by that is, particularly in Hosea, Hosea is told to marry a harlot who then commits adultery. Hosea is commanded to take her back, and guess what she does? She commits adultery again. And so on, and so on, and so on. And, and this little episode is meant to symbolize what has been going on for generations on a greater scale in Israel. Israel has been playing the harlot, the adulterous wife, by worshiping other gods. But Yahweh has always been faithful, and He's always been the forgiving husband, taking Israel back 
time and time again. Uh, the prophets, particularly the minor prophets and all the prophets, really love to use symbolism like this and then explain the symbolism. We'll see it over and over again. But at any rate, the point here in Hosea is that Yahweh's patience has run out and it's time for Israel to endure the covenant curse. Nonetheless, as mentioned, what do we say these books always end on? Grace. Grace is still going to be held out and the book is still going to end in hope. Here's the pivotal text you've got here. Outline with pivotal text. You can look at that. You'll see accusation, judgment, mercy. Again, over and over again. That's just another way of saying indictment of sins, judgment of sins, and grace. Accusation, judgment, mercy. Accusation, judgment, mercy, and so on and so forth. And so really it's split into two big sections. Hosea's adulterous wife, Gomer. Yahweh's adulterous wife, Israel. And, and you'll begin to notice there, I think I put that in your note, there's, there's phrases all around that, that indicates when we're in accusation, when we're in judgment, and when we're in mercy. Bring charges, rebuke, plead with, contend with, um, remark the charges. Phrases like blow the horn, sound the trumpet, are the beginning of the judgment. And then yet, afterwards, other such transition words like that mark the beginning of mercy. Alright, you ready for some Bible tonight? Everybody ready? All right. Last week we were a little hesitant on who's going to read, so let's get let's get comfortable. If you, again, if I know what happens when I say we're going to read this text, you do a once over to see if there's any tricky words in there. That's okay. Just remember, we're in Callahan. We're used to mispronouncing things, right? So, and I and let me just share a secret with you. I don't know how to pronounce these things often either. You just do it with confidence and people don't question you on it because that's, this is the county we live in. Uh, so, uh, so we're going to get ready to do this and we're going to start with Hosea 1 through 3. Again, Hosea banks on two very powerful images to get his message across. The first is a marriage. There is no greater symbol of love or commitment than a marriage. Hosea reminds us that Israel is in covenant relationship with Yahweh akin to a marriage. That love, that commitment, that devotion should be present, and it really is on Yahweh's end. However, secondly, Hosea also uses the imagery of adultery to describe the relationship between Israel and Yahweh. Few things, well, this used to be the case, I pray it still is at least, few things are universally recognized to be as great and evil as adultery is. Well, to drive his message home about how treacherous and evil Israel's rebellion is, Hosea calls them adulterous. Calls Israel, you're an adulterer. And then as mentioned, Hosea himself is told by Yahweh to marry a harlot and receive her back after she commits adultery against her in order to embody and symbolize the relationship between Yahweh and his people. And Hosea has to be thinking, oh, the joy of being a prophet, right? Uh, Good night, this guy gets it. He and Jeremiah um, get to be used by the Lord. And I'm sure they're in heaven rejoicing and saying it's completely and totally worth it now. But there had to be times in his life where he had to be looking at the Lord and saying, Really? Alright. He is always faithful and forgiving, but Israel has always played the harlot. Let's start by somebody reading chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself a wife of poetry and have children of poetry. For the land commits flagrant poetry for sacred years. 
All right, so the next time somebody comes up to you and says, God simply wants you to have a happy and easy life, just point them to the book of Hosea, right? Um, that's, yeah, it may not be the most biblical thing. He wants you to have joy, but that joy ultimately found in knowing him, right? So you can read more about Hosea's relationship with Gomer, which is the name of his immoral wife, and what it says about Israel in chapters 1 through 3. Again, as you do, you'll notice grace and mercy everywhere. It ends, grace and mercy, grace and mercy. Despite Israel's treachery, Yahweh is covenantally committed. As mentioned, they always end on grace. But before we move on, though, I want to point out one particular text we've talked about already. Chapter 1, verse 9. I'll, uh, I'll read this one since it has a little bit of a different word. Then God said, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Now, we know, because we've been through a whole lot of books of the Bible up to this point in Old Testament survey, the significance of what just happened, right? The significance of the Lord saying this. This is a sad moment. Hosea is told to name his son, literally, not my people. And the point here is that Israel's called not my people by Yahweh. He's casting them off. But look at the very next verse. In fact, look at verse 11. In fact, let's go, let's read 10 and 11. Someone read verses 10 and 11 for me. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it will come about in the, in the place where it is said uh, to them, You are not my people. It will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God, and the sons of, and the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land... For great will be the day of Jezreel. Sounds good. That's not necessarily confident because you had that high squeal up at the end a little bit. But I think that's right. That sounds right to me. Um, thank you, brother. Appreciate it. All right, so verse 10, we have Yahweh is going to marry them again. In verse 11 here, Hosea is even prophesying that Israel and Judah, those two nations who are currently, what? Separate. Separate. They're going to be reunited again. And they're going to have one ruler over them. Who could that be, I wonder, right? As we read this. And then we turn to Romans 9.23 and we read, And that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As He says also in Hosea, I will call them My people who were not My people, and her beloved, who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. So Paul, back in Romans, is saying that the great restoration from exile here prophesied by Hosea includes another people group. That is us, us the Gentiles, right? That's kind of important. Wrought by Christ on the cross. Um, that's a That's a... Remarkable thing. Jesus Christ's life, His ministry, death, and resurrection, that's the true return from exile to where people are again reconciled to God. Not only Israel, 
but everyone who's been estranged from God because of our sins. We all deserve to be cast away from His presence for all of eternity. But Jesus Christ has satisfied the wrath of God and foreshadow, uh, I'm sorry, and brings us back into fellowship with Him. The exile, remember what it is, it's a type. What's a type? Yeah, it's a foreshadowing. Remember, it's a it's a it's a picture. It's a um, it's it's typology. It's a it's a, a demonstration looking forward of something that's coming, a greater and climactic, greater truth, and that's what happens in the exile. The exile is picturing the greater climactic truth in Christ. Well, we say praise God to that, don't we? Amen. For the salvation is not only for Israel but for all who would ever repent and give their lives to Jesus in faith, regardless of their ethnic background. Peter actually says the same thing in his first letter, in 1 Peter 2, 9-10. through 10. Is just the reference given there, or is the verse written out? Just a reference? I'll read it for you, so you don't have to turn there. 1 Peter 2, 9-10. through 10. Y'all stay in Hosea. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. How great a salvation this is. No wonder we praise Him, right? We were once not a people, and now we're the family of God. Alright, we move on to Hosea 4 through 14. Uh, chapters 1 through 3, they, again, when we're doing a survey class, we're just picking texts that really embody the rest of the, rest of the book and picture the rest of the book. 1 through 3 does that. Uh, it really embodies the rest of the book. Hosea's relationship with Gomer is, is left behind and the focus becomes entirely on Israel and Yahweh. But again, you'll notice in the outline on your handout there, that there are three sections of accusation, judgment, and mercy. Always, always, always ending on mercy. Someone read Hosea chapter 9 verses 8 and 9 for me. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God, but the prophet is a fowler snare in all his ways, enmity in the house of his God. They are deeply corrupted as in the day of Gibeah, he will remember, remember their iniquity. He will punish their sin. All right, that's actually a really great picture of God's loving kindness and gentleness toward sinners. Um, uh, so, in Psalm one hundred three nine through fourteen, tells us He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, I don't know if you know geography, pretty far. I know we live on a circular planet, but still, you know, get the picture. Uh, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. Uh, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Excuse me. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. For He knows our frame and He remembers that we are dust. So now we we go back to the gospel because Hosea is ultimately, its main character is Jesus Christ. We ask the question, how can God have grace on sinners, which is what Hosea teaches, and, and yet still uphold His righteousness and be just, also as Hosea teaches? Well, 
That's a great mystery, isn't it? Until we understand the cross. For what happened on the cross? God reconciled His justice and His grace without compromising either one. And if that intrigues you, let me just tell you, write down Romans 3 and read verses 21 through 26 tonight. And then you'll just marvel and gawk like Paul does at God's great wisdom and how He can do that. Romans 3, 21 through 26. We won't read it now because we're surveying here. One word of application before we leave Hosea. Uh, Well, actually, maybe a couple. The first is this. The first is a call to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. A call to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins have made a separation between you and God. And it is only, 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 only through Jesus' death and resurrection that we can be healed and reconciled to Him. Secondly, not only should we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I think Hosea teaches us that we need to see sin the way God sees sin. Uh, Disobeying the Lord is not a minor, inconsequential thing that we often pretend it is. You want to know what Hosea teaches us that disobeying the Lord is? Adultery. It is. Disobedience is adultery. The New Testament tells us this too. James chapter 4 verse 4 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we are to be wholly devoted to our God and we as a church need to think deeply about how we can help each other keep away from befriending this world in such a way. What a a message to our our students going back to school this week, right? James 4.4. It's also important that we teach them though that when we stumble, because anybody in here stumble with making friends with the world lately? Just me? All right, thank you for saying no, Tony. Yeah, good, good. I just, this isn't just therapy for me. It's good to know. I'm involved here. Um, so when we do, as we all do, what are we supposed to do? We lift each other up. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we remind each other to glory in the Lord's compassion and grace. That somebody read for me Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Come and let us return to the Lord, for He has torn, but He will heal us. He has stricken, but He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up, that we may live in His sight. Now, if you're thinking New Testament-wise, that third day He will raise us up is going to mean something to you, isn't it? Alright, I love that. Uh, But it's, it's also a very encouraging passage. He will lift us up. The question actually then might come... Uh, to your brain in this way, okay? If, if the Lord does show us such compassion and grace, even when we fail and disobey and commit adultery against Him, then why obey the Lord? Right? Why obey the Lord if we know He's just going to forgive us anyway? Well, there's, there's many answers that we can give for this, but let's just look at the end of the book of Hosea. Someone read chapter 14... Verse 9 for me. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. The transgressors stumble. 
Right. So, so the ways of Yahweh are what? Right. They're righteous. They cause the righteous to walk and they cause the rebellious to stumble. You want to you walk and not stumble, don't you? You want to be wise, don't you? Then don't inflame the anger of the Lord. Don't presume upon His grace. Walk in His ways. But when you fail, as we all do, there is a Redeemer who forgives. Praise be to the Lord. Alright, that's Hosea. Let's go to Joel. Ready? This one's even shorter. Turn now to the next book of the Bible. Joel is just one page over to the left. The author is Joel. You guys are getting good at this. Um, here's what's interesting about Joel. We, we really don't know all that the time frame when he prophesied. We don't because he, he doesn't actually tell us which king was reigning at the time. But, but based on the language, based on the vocabulary, scholars suspect that Joel's actually one of the earliest guys who prophesied. That would put the writing of Joel in the early 8th century B.C. Some even say into the 9th century B.C. That's just really all we know about the historical context. But redemptive historically, Joel is similar to Hosea. In that, he prophesied after the division of the kingdom, but before the north kingdom fell. The only difference would be that Joel prophesies even in the midst before the north kingdom fell, he actually prophesies to Judah, the southern kingdom. What makes Joel really distinct, though, is this dude is like doomsday preppers, right? He's the doomsday preppers of minor prophets because he has a central focus on the end of the world, okay? You can picture him as the guy with the sign, right, at the football games who's like with the, the blowhorn saying, guys, it's coming, apocalypse is here, right? So uh, maybe not that intense, but mm, kind of. A, thematic, a theme for Joel would be this. The day of the Lord is prefigured in a locust plague and in an invading army. The day of the Lord, just remember that phrase, you're going to see it over and over again, in Joel, is prefigured in a locust plague and in an invading army. In Joel, we learn a lot more about what the day of the Lord is, just like Hosea did. Joel also points to things in this world as symbols and representations that embody his message. Joel points to two historical events. A locust plague, and if you read the theme, what's the other? An invading army to say that if the people of God will not repent, then the locust plague and invading army are foretaste of greater judgment and disasters that are to come. That's what the day of the Lord will be, he says. Judgment and wrath upon those who are unrepentant. You got your outline there and pivotal text. Helps you in your Bible reading. Let's skip that and go right into the theme text. Start in the book of Joel. Joel 1 to 2.11. Again, the day of the Lord is just explicitly mentioned in Joel more than any other book. And it's only three chapters. But what is the day of the Lord? I'm so glad that you asked that question. Thank you. It is a future expectation that's found mainly in the prophets where they're looking forward to a one-time event in the future where, where Yahweh is going to descend onto the earth, judge His people's enemies, vindicate His people, and recreate the entire universe, establishing peace with His people at the head of the nations. That's a big sentence, I know. All right, but... There are too many texts of reference for this, but it's everywhere. Isaiah 13. 
Amos chapter 5, Zephaniah 1. That should be enough to start with. And if you didn't get the chance to write those down, see me afterwards, I'll give them to you. Um, Regardless, we should be able to learn enough about the day of the Lord right here in Joel. Turn to Joel 1. Let's see how he uses these historical symbols. I just mentioned a prefigure this day of the Lord. Somebody look at verses 4 through 6 of chapter 1 for me. While the dawn of locusts has left, the swarm of locusts has eaten. And what the swarm of locusts has left, the creeping locusts has eaten. And what the creeping locusts has left, the creeping locusts has eaten. Awake drunkards, weep and wail, all your wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off in your mouth. For nations have invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of the lion, and has the fangs of the lions. Don't you think verse 4 would make a great memory verse for us? <laughs> yeah. Y'all don't, want to, y'all don't want to commit that to memory? That's, it'd probably be pretty easy, you know? That, you know it's structured in that way. Alright, here's, here's what's happening. is There's locusts and the terror upon the land is getting worse. Think inflation, but like bugs eating crops, right? Um, so, this is what's happening. Uh, the locust plague in verse 4, if that's not bad enough, two verses later in verse 6, here comes the evading army, and all this is serving to warn the people of God. And, and warn them to what? If they don't repent then actually greater woes than the physical, temporal things of this world are coming for them. This, this time in the form of the great day of the Lord, which he's obsessed about, we just mentioned. Look at verse 15. Someone read chapter 1, verse 15 for me. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Okay, so you can actually picture it this way. It's almost as if the locust and the army are like the mini-day of the Lord. And whereas the day of the Lord is terribly worse than this, okay? In fact, Joel chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, I'll read this one, says, uh, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before His army, for His camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes His word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? That seems uplifting, right? Yet, is there any hope to escape this end of time judgment? This cataclysmic catastrophe? Yeah, look actually at just the next verse. Verse 12. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. Who knows if He will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So what's the way of escape, according to verse 11, or to verse 12? Repent. Repent. Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty simple, right? The people must turn back to Yahweh. Isn't that interesting? Who's the one bringing destruction here? Ourselves. Yeah, uh, Yahweh, right? Yahweh's the one who's orchestrating this. It's the day of who? That's this great and terrible day is the day of the Lord. He's bringing the, the, the destruction. And yet, on the other hand, who's their only hope for safety? Also the Lord. That's right. Well, of course. Let me ask you, who else can protect you from God's wrath but God Himself? Right? Who, who could possibly withstand the wrath of God outside of 
God Himself. Who could deliver you from the wrath to come? Only Him. So once again, we're driving right back to the Gospel in the book of Joel. Only Jesus Christ, who is fully man and fully God, can possibly save sinners from God's own wrath. It is utter foolishness for us to think there could potentially be multiple paths to God that bypass the Lord Jesus Christ. For who else other than the God-man could possibly appease the wrath of God and bring us to Him? So, So this repentance is now... It's followed by salvation for the penitent. And it's interesting to see the Lord's motive for exactly why He saves them. Someone read chapter 2, verse 17 for me. Let the priests, the Lord ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, uh, and do not make thine inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among... The people say, where is their God? Okay, so, so in that verse, Joel's actually concerned. Uh, he's, he's concerned that the nations are going to mock the Lord if His people are destroyed. Therefore, to vindicate His own glory, we see in verse 18, then the Lord will be zealous for His land and pity His people. The Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you'll be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Then someone go down and read verse 25 of chapter 2. So I will restore you to the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. Yeah, somebody then finish up with uh, verse 28. Come to pass, afterward, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. All right. So, so the same purpose for the salvation is the same thing we saw in the book of Exodus and the book of Ezekiel, right? But what we're what we're seeing here is the day of the Lord is is a day of wrath and punishment for some, and a day of salvation and vindication for others. For those who rebel against Yahweh, the day of the Lord is a day of reckoning and justice. But for those who repent and gladly submit to Him, it's a day of mercy and joy. Chapter 3 goes on to describe how Israel and Judah will be restored in the relationship with Yahweh, never again to taste the bitter fruits of sin. The whole universe is renewed as well. Someone read chapter 3 verse 18 for me. And in that day the mountains will drip with a sweet wine. All right, big uh, big big theological word here. That is eschatological language. What's eschatological mean? End times, right? That is end times. You hear that? Sweet wine and milk and water springing forth. That is. Picture new heavens, new earth. That is a land of peace and affluence, and it's what we long for. But one more text before we close, okay? Joel 2, what Tony read at the beginning in chapter 28 through 32. I want to look at this passage here, and I'll read it for you. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit. spirit on all flesh. 
Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This is Old Testament, guys. This is Old Testament. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord... We know that one, right? For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Noticing here, there's, there's an outpouring of the Spirit and the emphasis on deliverance or salvation. Okay, uh, So the day of the Lord, it's going to be accompanied by the Spirit and then also by these signs that we see here. Did you notice those signs? Pretty far out there. Now for the question of the hour. When did this day of the Lord take place? That's right. I asked when did it take place and I heard it already. Pentecost. Look at Acts chapter 2. We're going to turn there. Acts chapter 2. Somebody already there? Go ahead and read verses 1 through 4 for me, Dave. And when the day of Pentecost had come, and they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it was filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Alright, this was about seven weeks after Jesus' resurrection. Now how do we interpret this? How does Peter interpret this? Turn your eyes to verse 14 with me of Acts chapter 2 if you're not already there. It says this, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea, and all that dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And guess what Peter goes on to say? Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Exactly what we just read. Peter is saying that the day of the Lord has arrived. The great end time spirit is poured out in all who will now call upon the name of the Lord... Today is the day of salvation for all who repent. That's what Peter says. Are you confused? Because we also said that it was going to accompany things, but there was something else. The Spirit's there, but we're missing another element here. There were some wonders in the heavens, these signs of the earth, right? The, the thing like the darkening of the sun. Where's all that? Turn to Matthew chapter 27. Verses 45 through 52. Don't you just love the Bible? I try to tell you, main character of the Old Testament, very simple. His name is Jesus. 45 through 52 says in Matthew 27, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. 
Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked. And the rocks were split, and the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. That's an account of Jesus' death. What we're seeing here is that the day of the Lord came crashing down upon Jesus. He bore that day of wrath on behalf of His people, those who call upon Him. Now, they've received the eschatological, end times spirit to live in this day of salvation. One last question, if you're not confused enough. What about that last element we missed, that recreation of the universe? Surely that hasn't happened yet, has it? No, it hasn't. That truly is an end of the world event that still lies ahead. That's why we use this term in the day of the Lord, the kind of the already and the not yet. See, what's going on here is that there are, are multiple horizons of fulfillment for this particular prophecy. Okay? Remember how we talked about sometimes with a prophecy, there's an immediate fulfillment and then a future fulfillment. That's what we see with the day of the Lord. The immediate fulfillment of the day of the Lord is that the day of salvation has come in Jesus Christ. And it's been another fulfillment of this day of the Lord prophecy has come when the Spirit of God comes down on the day of Pentecost. And yet, we have not been fully recreated. Because if we were, we're in trouble, right? This is a fully recreated universe and uh, something has gone terribly wrong. This one's still lying ahead. But get this. For some... The day of God's wrath has already come for you. When did it come for me? The day of God's wrath towards me came on the day when Christ was crucified. I entered into it in space and time on the day I got saved, certainly. But it happened all the way back then. That was the day of the Lord for me, and that's the only day of terror that I will ever, never experience because of God's blessing of saving me. Yet, yet, there are some whose day of the Lord, the day of His wrath, still lies ahead. There's a still future. And that will be when Jesus Himself returns to consummate all things, bringing with Him judgment for the unrepentant and bringing with Him a new universe for His people. So it's as though we are currently in the day of the Lord. It has already dawned in God's first visit to earth, but it's awaiting its completion when He comes again. That's what we actually see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1-5. through 5. I know that you haven't spent a lot of time in 1 Thessalonians 5 as a member here. Um, that's a joke, because we did. Hopefully you remember that, or I will preach it again. Uh, we start in verse 1 of chapter 5. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night for when they say peace and safety then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape but you brethren are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief you are all sons of light and sons of the day we are not of the night nor of darkness I hope you noticed 
all the ramifications for evangelism here in the book of Joel. Have you? One, we, we, we need to remember that there is a day of reckoning that's actually coming. And here's what we tend to do as Christians as we think about that day of the Lord coming and the return of Christ, and we somehow begin to fear this because we really aren't assured of our salvation. We're really in that doubting whether we belong to the Lord. If we truly knew that we belong to the Lord, there would be no fear in the day of the Lord coming because we know that ours was placed upon Jesus. And yet, we do know those found without a Savior on this day will not stand. So it should motivate us to share the gospel. Number two, though, the good news that is Jesus died to absorb His own wrath. Now, number three, in order to be saved, one must repent and call upon the name of Jesus in faith. So, number four, we need to remember that conversion happens only in the power of the Holy Spirit, as we just saw. And then lastly, I want you to turn back to Joel, in Joel 3, verses 16 through 17. Someone read that for me. The Lord, will, the Lord also will roar from Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for His people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. All right, did you hear that in verse 17? Listen to me. This is very, very important. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. The goal of salvation is not only to escape the coming wrath of the Lord, but the goal of salvation is to know the Lord. The goal is not just to get out of hell. The goal is to know Him and be with Him forever. Let me ask you, Is that your hope? Is that why you fled to Jesus? If your motivation for calling upon the name of the Lord is only to be spared from eternal torment, then the reality is you may not actually know Him. You may not be saved. Why? Because it takes no supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to cause someone to fear hell. It doesn't. But to love the Lord Jesus more than you even love the breath in one's lungs, Luke 14, 26. Now that is a, that's a real conversion. Do you love Jesus even more than your own life? Do you want to know Him? Do you want to be with Him more than anything? Well, praise Him because He is made away. By absorbing the day of the Lord's wrath on behalf of those who call on Him with this sort of love. Lastly, there's a sixth thing. It must always be remembered that God's motivation for saving sinners is His own glory. Always. He is exalted and held in awe in our hearts when we think about how great a salvation this is. And it is a great salvation. I just, I'm just i mastering this, guys. Look at that. It's not quite 7.30 yet, and we're done. We've completed the first two books of the Minor Prophets today. I hope you get a kind of a, a sense of Yahweh's indignation against sin 
And then also His great wisdom in preparing a way for us to experience mercy and grace even in the midst of that indignation. And all praise to His Son, Jesus Christ. For there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Right? Amen. Any questions, Hosea? Joel. (laughs) I missed you. (laughs) Any questions you want to ask out loud? And nothing about the Nephilim. Uh, So, (laughs) Nothing? Alright, you can always comment after class. Next up, who knows what's after Hosea and Joel in your Bibles? Amos and the shortest book in the Old Testament. Obadiah. Alright? Doesn't mean it's going to be short. Don't think on that. Alright, thank you guys. Let's pray together and you'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you, Lord, that for those of us who are in Christ, you have absorbed, Lord, the day of the Lord for us in recognizing our adulterous hearts as Hosea exposes, uh, Lord, how, how are we even to comprehend the mystery of the goodness and majesty of this great salvation? It is indeed a mystery for us, and yet we will give our lives, devoting our lives to knowing it more because as we study this great salvation, it is revealed more and more your tremendous and perfect and matchless character. And that's the goal in all this, Lord. It is simply to know you better. And so, Lord, I pray that each and everyone here would, at the end of this time, have known you better than than an hour ago. Lord, help us see that as our chief end in life, to bring you glory and honor. Uh, For you are good, and you, um, you have loved us so well in Christ. We pray all these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Man, thank you guys so much. You're dismissed.